Welcome back, Warriors. Tansei Sego, Anibuju. Kwei Nin Deluisi Pam Palmeter, and I'm the host of this show, The Warrior Life. This podcast is a show about living the warrior life, a lifestyle that focuses on decolonizing our minds, bodies, and spirits, while at the same time revitalizing our cultures, traditions, laws, and governing practices. And it's also about asserting, living, and defending our sovereignty all over Turtle Island. And my last episode with Mohawk Land Defender Skylar Williams marked my 100th episode of the Warrior Life Podcast. I cannot believe that I am at 100 episodes. It seems like I only just started this yesterday. My first podcast was actually two years ago. And I wasn't quite sure where I wanted to take the podcast. I just knew that I wanted to reach people and younger people and people of all different backgrounds who access content on podcasts instead of YouTube videos or Instagram or Facebook. And so I started out with a few short podcasts about the importance of water and traditional medicines. I figured, you know, this would ground me and I would figure out where to go from there. And then the first person I ever interviewed on my podcast was native actor Adam Beach. I mean, I couldn't believe he actually came on my podcast. I was so excited. And he had such an inspirational story to share and offered words of wisdom and encouragement for native youth that I thought, oh, I just have to bring more and more native voices to the Warrior Life podcast. So from there, what I did was basically alternate between podcasts where I personally would address specific issues like reconciliation in cities or universities, um, serious issues like murder to missing Indigenous women and girls, environmental destruction and ecocide, police violence, corruption and brutality, and the increasing issue of appropriated identities. And I would alternate that with one-on-one interviews with Native warriors doing great work. I mean, incredible people like Cindy Blackstock, Kanahus Manuel, Molly Wickham, Ellen Gabriel, and so many others. And I also made sure to cover issues impacting our brothers and sisters in the United States, essentially in the southern part of Turtle Island, who are cut off by the arbitrary border between all of our traditional nations, and really include Native American voices like Native lawyer Gabe Galanda, Arthur David Wilkins, and radio personality John Kane. And um, something else that you know, just kind of organically evolved was during the anti-racism protests and rallies after George Floyd murder. I interviewed prominent Black activist voices like Raman Maynard, Desmond Cole, and of course, the incredible Elle Jones. I mean, Elle is such a powerhouse and an inspiration because I thought it was important to use the platform of this podcast to show solidarity with our Black brothers and sisters who have also been victims of police racism and brutality like our Native brothers and sisters. So if you go through the podcast over the last few years, you'll be able to see, you know, some I would do multiple episodes in a row where I would feature, say, all Inuit voices or all Mi'kmaq voices, for example, or we would bring in Métis voices. And the people that we interview, you know, for the most part, uh, tend to be grassroots, on the ground, community-based people, and include 
some elected leaders, some traditional or hereditary leaders, and community-based leaders. You know, those people who are warrior minds, bodies, and spirit who just rise up and take care of their people and their communities and advocate and don't have any particular formal position. Those people are super inspiring. And I've also had the honor and privilege to learn from Native warriors that serve their people in a wide variety of ways, like I mentioned before, traditional, elected, and community-based leaders, land defenders and water protectors literally on the ground, lawyers, educators, advocates, activists, artists, authors, journalists, actors, and even chefs. I, I was so happy to have a Native chef on the show to talk about, you know, how food is medicine and how important our culture is and how it's all wrapped up together. So thank you all so much. I mean, every single warrior that has come on the Warrior Life podcast has not only shared their stories, but lessons learned and actually help inspire the rest of us to not just learn more, but to do more, to support them as individuals, their communities, their nations, and work together in solidarity across social justice groups to make the world a better place. And also, I mean, we wouldn't have gotten to 100 episodes without all the listeners who kept liking the podcast, leaving good reviews, leaving positive comments and feedback, making requests for guests and issues, and sharing my podcasts all over social media. Like every time I saw that, I was just so thankful because that means more people are hearing Indigenous voices being lifted up. And I also heard from some of the listeners that some teachers and professors even use these podcasts in their classrooms. And that's like exactly what I hoped would come out of this podcast. Um, and what I like most about this podcast is that I don't have to follow any conventional rules. I can make these podcasts as long or as short as I want to. I can talk to whoever I want to, and I can cover all of the issues that you all care about. And that's what's really important to me because I want to help answer questions. I want you to hear from the voices that you want to hear from because I am in this incredible position where I learned from every single person that's ever been on this podcast. And because this podcast is 100% listener supported through Patreon and t-shirt sales, that means that I can keep all of my content entirely independent. In other words, I don't have to insert lengthy commercials every 10 minutes or in the middle of my podcasts, nor do I have to edit my content to fit with an employer or corporate agenda of any kind. This podcast is entirely my own, and most of the costs of running this podcast is paid for by donations or monthly subscriptions from you, the listeners on Patreon, and I also get to use some of the proceeds of my t-shirt sales to help pay for the development of the podcast and making it bigger and better. And of course, I always use the excess to help support our land defenders on the ground because they always need it. So for those of you who want to continue supporting this podcast for the next 100 episodes, you can access my Warrior Life clothing store and my Patreon account through my website, which is just pampalmeter.com. I'll also put the links in the description box below, but I find it easier to keep everything on my website. That way you can find my 
Indigenous Nationhood blog, my YouTube videos, my Warrior Life podcast, or my Warrior Kids podcast for all of you who have kids out there, and all of my publications, both my magazine and news op-eds, but also my academic publications, and other ways that you can support uh, Native people on the ground. So as a heads up, um, the Warrior Life podcast will be taking a break from one-on-one interviews over the summer because... You know, we've had a really heavy year, especially the last couple of months. Uh, It feels like the last couple of years have been really heavy. We're just consistently inundated. So we all need a bit of a vacation and some time to unwind. But that doesn't mean there won't be podcasts. By listener request, actually, I can't even claim this idea as my own. This is something that was requested from listeners. I've decided to upload the Reconciliation Book Club series that I started on YouTube to the Warrior Life podcast. So basically each week this summer, you will get to hear a review of different books written by Native authors and allies on really important issues. So if you've never had a chance to check them out on YouTube, or even if you have, now you can read the books yourself, or maybe you've already read the books, but you can check out my podcast review of these books while you're running, hiking, biking, cleaning your house, fixing up your garden, sorting out your garage, or driving to your favorite vacation spot. Um, Podcasts are so awesome that way. You can just leave them playing in the background. Um, And the other thing is that I will be able to give you some updates that I wasn't able to in the review Uh, by way of these podcasts. And one of the, so for those of you who haven't heard them on YouTube, I, in some of these podcasts, I actually get to interview some of the authors. So you really don't want to miss that. You get to hear about their books from their own voice. Now, as a bit of another heads up, I recorded these book review videos when I was early on in my YouTube days. uh, And before I figured out how to record good audio and just how to edit all of my videos. So they might not sound exactly like my podcast, so hopefully you can forgive me for that. I am definitely by no means an expert in audio and video and editing. I'm doing my best. Basically, I learn everything from YouTube or research, but I will try to fix the audio as best as I can so that they sound as close to my usual podcasts. So with all of that out of the way, this week is going to be the first week and I'll be sharing the review I did of Whose Land Is It Anyway? A Manual for Decolonization. And because I talk about all this in detail, I don't need to do this right now. So let's get right into the review. So before we get started, I want to talk to you about uh, this book club and, and my goals for this book club. And first and foremost, I want to make it a safe and friendly place for everyone. That youth can participate, elders can participate, uh, Indigenous peoples and allies in a safe space where there's no conflict, there's no attacks, there's no uh, promotion of hatred or racism or anything like that. Now I know my subscribers have been entirely fantastic, so I don't expect any problems. But because I'm the one responsible for this book club, I just have to let you know that if there's swearing or attacking other people or any kind of hatred, all of those comments will be deleted and those accounts will be blocked because we really want this to be a family-friendly place. So let's get started. 
Here is the first book. It's called Whose Land Is It Anyway? A Manual for Decolonization. It's been edited by Peter McFarlane and Nicole Chavez, and it was published by the Federation of Post-Secondary Educators in BC. Thank you so much for putting this book together and uh, for all of the hard work you did to make sure that you had some of the leading Indigenous activists and scholars and, and thought leaders in this country contribute to this book. Now, many of you have, may have already noticed, but the cover art here looks very familiar, and that's because it's done by the Métis artist Christy Belcourt, and all of her work is so inspiring. It, it, it's a real symbol of our resistance and the power of art to move people, and I think it was a very appropriate choice for this book. Now, in terms of the technical part of this, uh, it's a very small book. Like I mentioned in my last video, uh, it's available completely online as a PDF or an ebook. You can totally download it. Uh, they didn't print out co hard copies to sell anywhere, so you can't buy it online, but you can find it for free online. Uh, and though it's a very short book, it's only 72 pages of text in total. There's 14 really small chapters, and it's divided into three core themes and I think these themes make a lot of sense um, it goes from you know what they're describing as the machinery of colonialism and then they move into acts of resistance and then it ends with you know some conversation around what is reconciliation and what is the path forward so I think in terms of how the book is structured it's really structured chronologically it makes sense logically and for anyone who is just new to Indigenous issues at all, I think it would really help, you know, understand where the authors are coming from. Now, the really exciting thing about this book for me is that it features 14 different authors, and these authors are from all over Canada. They're both Indigenous authors and some allies, and some of the most well-known Indigenous activists and thought leaders in this country. So you have authors like Russ Diabo, who's a Mohawk policy analyst and activist, um, Taegi Alfred, who's also another Mohawk, and he's a scholar and activist, uh, Bev Jacobs, another Mohawk. There seems to be a Mohawk theme here, but trust me, there are other Indigenous groups represented here. Um, you have Kanahos Manuel, who is the daughter of the late Arthur Manuel, for whom this book is done in memory. Um, and she's from the Schwepmik in BC. Uh, I contribute a chapter. In fact, that's one of the surprises. I do the last chapter talking about reconciliation and I'm from the Mi'kmaq Nation. So there's people, um, men and women and uh, younger folks and older folks all represented here. And, and one of the allies who actually helped bring this book together is actually Nicole Shabas, who was the late Arthur Manuel's um, life partner and traveled with him all over the world in international forums to help advocate for Indigenous peoples. And her chapter is pretty special. She really reminds us about some of the core messages uh, from the late Arthur Manuel. 
and Arthur Manuel himself used to be the chief of the Nisqually in BC. He was a well-known indigenous activist all over Canada, but he was known all over the US and internationally because he constantly um, protected our sovereignty and our rights, not just here on Turtle Island, but at the international level to make sure that we were engaging as sovereigns at that level. So I think it's really, really special that we're focusing on this book that was done in his honor. The other thing I really like about how this book is structured is that it's not an academic book. So you don't have tons and tons of citations and research, demographics, statistics, and all of that stuff. People in this book are not writing this for an academic audience. They're not trying to convince a courtroom of, of what their beliefs are. This really reflects true, authentic Indigenous voices and the voices of allies basically saying, you know, the hard truth. Here's where we are. Here's how we got here. But here's the situation that we're in and what we need to do if we're going to you know, have a future where uh, we're safe in our identities, where we can enjoy our lands, uh, where we're free from violence. And I think that's a real strength here, that it's about Indigenous voice and it's not done in a way where they have to prove themselves in any way. And I think learning from Indigenous peoples in this way, in some ways, uh, almost like storytelling, it's really powerful. And I think for people who are reading this book for the first time or who haven't been introduced to Indigenous issues, I think it's a really effective way to reach out and make a call for people to become allies and, and make a change. Now the other strength about this is that this is a book about hard truth. There is no one in this book that is sugarcoating anything. You won't hear any political speeches, you won't hear any government jargon, and you certainly won't find any of the authors minimizing what has happened or continues to happen to us. And that's a real strength because if we're going to engage in this, you know, community of self-education and really talk about what reconciliation looks like, we have to get at the hard truth. Truth has to come before justice, and justice has to come before reconciliation. And I think we're just at the truth and fact-finding part of this journey, and that's why this book is so important, because it's just the straight truth, straight from Indigenous voices and allies. Now, the fact that this book is about hard truth might be a little bit jarring to some people, but I think if you read it a few times, you will see that this whole book is full of messages of hope. And in fact, when I read it, I got reinvigorated and even more inspired to work harder on this project of reconciliation. Now, I'd like to know how you felt about that, so make sure you leave me your comments uh, and your impressions in the comment box below this video so that I know where everybody is on this journey. Overall, did you feel inspired by this book too, despite the difficult messages, or did you find it a little too difficult to absorb. Now this book, like its title, is set up as a manual for decolonization. The focus here is the impact of colonization and what we need to do to continue the path of decolonization. And if you read carefully, you'll notice that each chapter 
contains some really important message or call to action that you could put together as your own manual to decide where you need to go from here in terms of reconciliation. Now what I would like to do is share some particularly powerful passages from just a few of the authors. I don't want to cover them all and, and spoil the surprise for those of you who haven't read the manual yet or for those of you who want to reread it and, and think about these issues some more. But I really want to start with um, Taegi Alfred. So Taegi Alfred is a Mohawk scholar and activist and you know prolific author. He's written and published lots. He has his own books, some of which we'll probably cover in this book club. And he has some really important messages. First of all, he talks about how the core harm of colonization has been the severing of our living relationship between ourselves, our nation, and the land. And he's also very honest when he says that the struggle is far from over. And to his mind, the solution moving forward is the same solution that's been there since our ancestors. And that is maintaining and revitalizing that connection we have with the land and getting our land back. There's simply no way around that. Land is core to decolonization. And this is a very similar message that Arthur Manuel gave in his chapter when he talks about the core harm done during colonization was the massive land dispossession from indigenous peoples. Arthur explains that this massive land theft going from a hundred percent of Turtle Island being indigenous territory to less than 0.2 percent of our lands held in tiny reserves is a massive land dispossession which has caused incredible harm. Arthur explains that this massive land theft is what directly related to both our extreme poverty and our dependence on the colonizing governments. And he agrees with Ty. He says the solution is getting our land back and our governing power over our lands and, and implementing our right to govern these territories and make decisions over what does and doesn't happen to the lands and waters, resources, and peoples in our territory. Now, Russ Diabo's chapter takes a little bit of a different turn. He focuses on how the colonial governments uh, use the Indian Act to control First Nations people. So deciding who was and who wasn't an Indian, who could live on reserve, keeping them trapped on reserves, that that was a, a form of control that in many ways still continues today. He also highlights the fact that the Indian Act is just part of the larger government policy towards us and that has always been to quote-unquote get rid of the Indian problem. And Russ's really hard message is that Canada's goals have never changed. They are still using the Indian Act and other policies to try to assimilate us get us out of the way so that Canada can continue with settlement and extraction of our resources and wealth generation while many of our people die in poverty. This is where Kanahoos Manuals chapter comes into play because she talks about land defense and defense of her territories and her peoples on the ground, actually defending territory from extraction, from contamination, from pollution, from invasion by 
uh, Canada's military or police forces, and she talks about real-life personal experience in this regard. Now keep in mind, Canahoos is the daughter of the late Arthur Manuel, so it should be no surprise that she is a warrior on the ground defending our rights. Canahoos doesn't sugarcoat the truth either. She is saying flat out that this is the battle that we are in. It's a very real battle, it's a physical battle, it's not a metaphorical one, and it's one where she calls on everybody to fall in line and protect our territories for future generations, both Indigenous peoples and allies. And it's the violence of land extraction that Beverly Jacobs talks about. Now she's also a Mohawk scholar and activist, and she talks about this core relationship between the colonization of indigenous lands and the colonization and targeting of indigenous women and girls. She talks about the history of the Indian Act, removing indigenous women and children from their own communities, the very early days of murdered and disappeared indigenous women, to how the violence continues today into the present with literally thousands of murdered and disappeared indigenous women and girls. Beverly makes the case that this is the heart of colonization, extractive violence in every sense, both from the lands and indigenous women and girls, and it has wreaked havoc on all of our nations. And she makes a very powerful call for us to take back our power, and I would suggest going back, rereading her chapter, and really thinking about the call that she's making, both on an individual level and a collective level. So one of the surprises is that I did the last chapter of the book, and I focus on decolonizing as a way of taking back our power. And, and I consider this whole book to be very inspiring, and I wanted to leave people with the message that we have the power to do this. And how do I know that? Because our people are still here. We have survived every kind of genocide that colonial governments have thrown at us. And our ancestors and those who are living today have fought, they have been strong, they have been resilient, they have been determined and proud of who we are as Indigenous peoples. You know, we believe in the sovereignty of our nations. We believe in, in the beauty of our cultures and traditions and languages and practices. And I know we have the power to make this change. Every little bit of, of success that we've had, every single right that we've ever proven, every single power that we've exercised hasn't come without a fight. And that's an unfair burden for us. However, we've done it and we will continue to do it. And the authors in this book show us that it's already well underway. And, and what I want allies to get from this is that they have a role in this. You know, once you know better, you should do better. And I know that it's unfair that you know, this should fall on our allies and should fall on indigenous peoples. You know, in fairness, government should be righting the wrongs. But until they step up, we need to be the government and we need to be the ones to force them to do this. So when I do book reviews, I always have to have some kind of critique. I like to look at the strengths of a book, but also see where there might have been some room for improvement. And honestly, 
although I might be a tiny bit biased because I'm a contributing author, uh, I have to say in all objective honesty, the only thing that I could find in this book that I really wanted to be different was that instead of 14 chapters, I wanted 400 chapters. Because this is exactly the kind of material that we need to share with one another. I mean, really lifting up the voices of Indigenous activists about where we are and, and where we need to head. I think those are important messages for everyone, Indigenous peoples and allies alike. And so it's it's kind of a frustrating critique in that it's the strength that it is so small because it's accessible and easily readable by most people. Um, and also that I wish it was, you know, many thousands and thousands of pages longer. But overall, I mean, I give this book a really high rating. I think we need more open access books. I think we need more smaller books like this, more books that focus on voice versus just having all the research and data and statistics and demographics because there's there's lots of time and place for that. But we really need to lift, lift up Indigenous voices and the voices of our allies in a more constructive way and an easily accessible way. And I think this book does it. So let me know in the comments below if you agree with me that this kind of book was easily accessible, it was easy reading for you, and uh, what kind of books you would like to see in the future. Already people are giving me suggestions on what kind of books they'd like me to review, and I'm making a list of them and I'll try to get to all of them uh, as soon as I can but let me know in the comments below what you think. So let's move on to some of the comments and impressions that were shared by the people who subscribe to this Reconciliation Book Club and first of all let me just say wow I mean the response was just amazing it was far more than I expected and that in and of itself gives me hope about reconciliation and where we're headed for the future. So I'm going to review some of the comments and impressions that were left. So for example, Katie says that she thinks that the book was really well done. Joe says it's in fact one of the best books that he ever read. Arle says that they learned a lot from the book and that was the whole idea of sharing this book. Now Drew and Susan, two separate subscribers, both really liked Russ Diablo's chapter on the Indian Act because it explained the extent of government control over Indigenous peoples and that was something that they were learning for the first time. So I'm really glad you both got uh, something out of Russ's chapter. Now Goldfish River said that um, all of the articles were very well written, but that um, they thought that the chapters written by Sharon Venn, Nicole Shabas, Senator Sinclair, and myself were especially enlightening with really good messages. Now, Cubert had a very different response to the book. They felt a bit depressed after reading it. Cubert felt that the no-holds-barred truth was a bit overwhelming and too much to handle all in one sitting. And I want to thank you, Cubert, for sharing your honest reaction to this book because I think it's important. For all of those who have left comments or questions, there are probably hundreds more who didn't feel comfortable to do so. And by you sharing your honest reaction, other readers out there will know that they're not the only ones having this reaction. Now it's true, we are all at very different stages of decolonization. Some of us are just beginning, some of us are well on our way, 
Um, all of us are learning about how to decolonize in a situation where colonization is ongoing and continues. It's not like one bad thing happened in the past and we just need to move on. The fact of the matter is that colonization continues, the violence continues, the injustice continues, and so trying to deal with that is going to be difficult for all of us. Just the truth of it, the hard, you know, unsugar-coated truth of it is very difficult. And I want you all to know that I am purposely starting with the most difficult stuff. And I'm doing that because to my mind, you know, this whole reconciliation project has gotten started off on the totally wrong foot. Um, governments and lots of people want to jump to all the good stuff, you know, to the uh, changes of names on building and celebrating National Indigenous Peoples Day and, and you know, sharing in cultural festivities. And that is all very pre mature. We're nowhere near any of that yet. What we should be doing is working very hard on uncovering all of the truth and dealing with the truth and then bringing about some kind of social justice. Actually dealing with the crisis at hand, not trying to historicize it or make tearful apologies and move forward. We actually need to end the injustice. And so that's why I'm starting all of us right in the middle of it. Because we've been historicized so much um, and what we've learned in school is often in history books or sociology books that start uh, in history, we're not dealing with who are Indigenous peoples right now? Where are they? What's the context? How do we get here? Um, and, and where do we need to go from here? And because most Canadians are going to get the majority of their education from the media or what they see on TV, it's important to know what's happening right now and what Indigenous peoples are saying about it so that you can understand that. If we only talk about pre-contact practices or hunting and fishing in, you know, 500 years ago, that isn't going to bring us to where we are today. We have to understand colonization in the current form and that's why I'm starting out with the hard stuff. My goal is that once we've done a sufficient amount of self-education, we can actually move towards some of the good stuff, you know, sharing of the culture and the language and the practices and, and all of those really fulfilling, enriching things. But reconciliation is about doing all of the hard work first. And that's why I started with the hard stuff. So Qbert, I hope you stay with uh, the book club and I hope everyone out there who shares Qbert's feelings of, of depression after reading some of these difficult issues, that you stick with the book club, keep learning keep putting in the hard and difficult work if you're able to so that eventually we can get to some of the really good stuff some of the stuff that we need to celebrate now let's move on to some of the questions that people sent me so Susan has a question and she asks how are activists viewed within their communities when they challenge the status quo and that is literally the question of the century because it is so important to understand that because colonization has devastated our relationships, our relationships within our families, our communities, our nations, our districts, our houses and our clans, it's devastated relationships between indigenous peoples and settlers and uh, the, the crown or government as a whole that there's 
clearly going to be uh, some conflict when it comes to challenging the status quo and unsettling all of this colonization you know, essentially the whole task of decolonization. So it's an excellent question because obviously there's tension, but there's no one answer. Keep in mind that in, you know, on Turtle Island, at least the northern part in what is now called Canada, there's between 50 to 60 or 70 traditional indigenous nations that have now been divided up into 634 individual First Nations. So you're talking about lots of nations, lots of communities all across this territory who are at different stages, have had different experiences, and reacted very differently. So in some uh, communities, for example, there is a lot of tension. So if people speak out or they challenge the status quo, they'll be retaliated against, they'll be vilified, they'll be looked at as troublemakers, they might even be ousted from their communities or, or prevented from participating in, say, community meetings, for example. Um, but then there's other communities across the country who see these people challenging the status quo as actually, you know, knowledge keepers themselves, as strategists, as people trying to fight to protect their nation. And they're welcome in as, as strategizers, as uh, advisors, as people who can help the government move forward in that community to resist what's going on in this country and protect, defend, and assert their land rights. And there's no better example of that than uh, many of the people who started and maintained the Idle No More movement. So all across the country there was a whole bunch of different reactions to people involved in Idle No More. There was primarily grassroots people saying the status quo is literally killing our people. We need to make a change. Trying to educate everyone. In some of their communities they were welcomed as advisors and today still work with First Nations as advisors about how to, you know, advance our rights and in other communities they were ousted and they were labeled troublemakers. And I think part of the problem is how the government reacts to indigenous activists, indigenous scholars, um, indigenous people who are advocating to protect our just core basic human rights, native rights, and they often label us as some kind of terrorists or militants or troublemakers or so, you know, quote unquote bad Indians. And this has really caused division within our own communities. So the government leads by example. And the old divide and conquer way of treating First Nations has been very, very effective. But where I gain hope from all of these people, all of these activists and educators um, and advocates you know, really trying to educate the Canadian public and their own people and really make change and challenge the status quo is that after Idle No More, especially after Idle No More, we had developed this huge nationwide, Turtle Island-wide uh, network of people where we can connect, we can support one another so that no one has to feel alone in this project. So even though there might be some tensions in other places, that's par for the course. Any social change throughout history in any nation or society has always come with some degree of conflict and tension. So we just need to support each other to work through that to get to the other side. And that other side is decolonization and the restoration of our self-determination.
So thank you very much for that question, Susan. I think it was an important one and it really shows a degree of caring for the people who are undertaking this activist work right now. Now, Lindsay has a question and she says, I read the book and I keep asking how? The government of Canada is not interested in reconciliation with no real leaders in the country and only politicians. How are those who are interested in healing the colonial past and making things right with indigenous peoples and the land supposed to make a difference? And that is another amazing question and it's one that I get all the time and I think it's one of the most important questions. It seems very overwhelming because it is. We're not talking about tinkering around the edges. We're not talking about little tiny legal amendments and tiny changes to policies. We're talking about grave human rights violations. We're talking about genocide. We're talking about land theft and destruction. We're talking about climate change. We're talking about multiple overlapping crises that should be treated in a very urgent and comprehensive way and it's not. So we have a whole bunch of allies saying, well, what do we do about it when we don't see any politicians doing what needs to be done? And I agree with you. There are precious few politicians that I have ever seen uh, and no parties that have ever come up with a comprehensive plan for ending genocide in Canada and rectifying in real and substantive ways all of the land and resource theft and the destruction to the environment and the basic human rights violations. Uh, all of them have policies to deal with one or two priority areas, but none of them are talking about real comprehensive and substantive reconciliation. So the unfair burden falls upon us as Indigenous peoples and allies, unfortunately. But remember that ultimately the real governing power in any democracy or just government are the people themselves. Just look at indigenous nations. The governing body is the people. All they do is appoint or elect or choose through ceremony or tradition or cultural practice their leaders, but they're the spokespeople. They're supposed to carry out the will of the people. And everything has become topsy-turvy when you talk about Canada or the United States. So-called democracies are ruled by precious few powerful people um, who've long forgotten about the voices of the people. They assume that because they were uh, voted into office or their party was supported through an election that that gives them free reign to do whatever they want regardless what the people are saying. So we need our allies to act as the governing force together with the indigenous governing force and make the changes that are required. So you might think that this is all very overwhelming and if you try to deal with all of it at once of course it'll be overwhelming and discouraging and you won't see the value of the actions that you take. But start small. That's what I suggest to people. You can't do everything all at once. Even us as Indigenous activists, most of us have very specific focus areas. So 
why don't you start with um, going on the First Nation Child and Family Caring Society. Uh, Dr. Cindy Blackstock and her organization has a list of things that you can do that are free. Uh, things like signing petitions and writing letters and you know helping to educate and advocate on behalf of First Nations kids in foster care to push Canada to end the racial discrimination against those kids. There's so many things you can do. Perhaps you're connected with municipalities or business leaders or wealthy landowners where you can all work together as a collective to identify lands that could be transferred back to individual or local First Nations communities. That would be a tremendous idea and that's already happening. There's so many different things. So while you're on this you know, uh, self-education journey, look for ways in which you can contribute in really meaningful ways to advocate for change alongside of Indigenous peoples. So now that we've done the review of the book and reviewed some of the comments and impressions and talked about some of the questions and answers, what I want you to do is go back look at the book and look through each of the chapters and find at least one action item. Make a list of what Indigenous peoples and allies are saying needs to be done moving forward and then really think about that list and where you can fit in to one or a couple of those action items. What it is that you can do to contribute in a really meaningful way to take action to address the issues that were raised in the book. For those of you who are looking for additional resources, on top of this book club, you can go to my website www.pampometer.com where you can find a list of my publications but also a list of resources like national commissions and inquiries so that you can be up to date on what's happening. Also, if you really liked some of the writing in this book by different authors, check out my podcast. It's hosted on SoundCloud but available everywhere else like iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher because I have some extensive interviews with many of the authors in this book like Rusta Abbo, Ty Alfred, uh, Canahus Manual and more to come where they talk at length about these issues and the things that need to be done uh, in, a, in a really profound way, in a really action-based and hopeful way and you might learn a lot from the podcast that will complement what you read in the book. I also do blogs on everyday issues. So these would be more current issues that are in the media. And it's on, it's called Indigenous Nationhood Blog. And I have tons and tons and tons of blogs there. If you follow me there, you'll always be up to date on what the current issues are. And of course, my YouTube channel. I have it set out into playlists. You can look at previous lectures, you can look at media, and you can also look at my YouTube videos where I talk about really difficult legal and political issues. I try to break down some court cases so that they're easier to understand. The National Inquiry into Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women, I try to summarize their report. There's lots of resources online that you can access to learn more and complement what you're doing in this book club. So the next book review in our Reconciliation Book Club is going to be An Act of Genocide, Colonialism and the Sterilization of Aboriginal Women. It was written by Karen Stoat and it's published by Fernwood Publishers. It's an 
excellent book. I think it is follows strongly after the book that we just read. It's also very timely after the National Enquiry's final report on murdered and missing Indigenous women, which talked about Canada being guilty of genocide and talking about the forced and coerced sterilization of Indigenous women and girls. So I think this book is very timely, very important to read. What I'll do is I'll leave a link to this book in the description box below. So you can purchase it online or you can go into a store and buy it, uh, borrow it from a library, share it with a friend. Perhaps you're starting your own reconciliation library like mine. I have a million books uh, from native authors and on native issues. Uh, it's totally up to you, whatever way you want to engage in this reconciliation book club. Thank you all so much for tuning in to this week's Warrior Life podcast, and hopefully you'll tune in next week for the next Reconciliation Book Club episode. Till next time, keep living a warrior life. Walaliag. <laughs>